0: Welcome to the Money Advantage Podcast, empowering business owners with the permission to think differently about money so that you can consciously choose to live a meaningful and fulfilled life now. Our passion is making money simple, fun, and doable, helping you feel great about your money and getting your money working for you so you can thrive.
1: All right. Good morning and welcome back to the Money Advantage Podcast. I'm Rachel Marshall and I don't have Bruce Wayner with me today. He is traveling, but I do have a special guest and that is Stephanie Bousley. I should have made sure I'm pronouncing your last name correctly. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. Good job. Excellent. So welcome Stephanie to the show. Thank you for having me, Rachel. Excellent. Well, we are talking today about paying off student loans and many people think of this as debt and there's a lot of guilt and a lot of shame and a lot of um, limitations and limiting beliefs that come along with that in a lot of ways. And Stephanie has really unpacked this for herself. She has not only recovered from $289,000 of student loan debt, she is a story of debtor, a millennial debtor to success. And we want to be able to share her story with you. And she also has a book where she's written all about this in Buy the Avocado Toast, and that's Making More Money, Living, or Crushing, A Guide to Crushing Student Loan Debt, Making More Money, and Living Your Best Life. So welcome, Stephanie.
2: Thank you so much. It's great to be here.
1: Excellent. Well, I am really excited to share your story with our audience today. And specifically, if you are listening to the show and you're thinking, I have this student loan debt, maybe it's been something that I either am about to graduate and I'm going to have student loan debt as I'm going into my life, or maybe you're thinking, this is still a, you know something that I'm dealing with and I'm 10 years or 12 years or 20 years out of school and I'm still working on paying this down. I think this conversation is going to be for you no matter where you fall in that spectrum. So today if you want to pay off student loan debt, build faith in yourself and be in a position of crushing that feeling of failure and guilt that comes along with it, this is the conversation for you. So Stephanie, let's go ahead and jump into your story. Tell us what what brought this whole thing about for you in terms of um where we are today you wrote this book but let's back up let's back up you went to school bring us on that story with with us
2: yeah yeah so i finished graduate school and got my master's in 2012 um from nyu which is new york university and it was still kind of we were coming off the recession at that time and there were very few film jobs which is what i had studied um so I had like over two hundred thousand dollars in student debt and I had started to read books about, you know, getting out of debt and personal finance. And pretty much every book I read just made me feel like I was like a dumb, bad person mm. who had made horrible life choices. It it kind of always I felt like tonally all of the books treated me like I was just an overspender. Like, um, and if I only stopped spending money on anything that's not an absolute necessity, like don't stop going to Starbucks, stop, you know, taking taxis, whatever, that I could someday get out of debt. But none of that stuff resonated with me because I had so much debt and such a low by comparison income that mm. I would have had to live that way for like 20 years before the debt was paid off. And I was 30 when I graduated. Mm. So It just didn't seem like uh, anything I read really took into account my situation, like that I wasn't just like someone who got into trouble shopping with credit cards or something like that. I actually always thought I would be a successful person. I went to the best schools. I tried to find something that I really loved as a career, you know, because I was always told this narrative of follow your dreams. and and all of that. So um, I decided to, I mean, ultimately what happened is I changed careers and I wrote my book to help people deal with my amount and type of debt um, while I was paying off my own. And one of the many things that this involved was, um, I actually worked abroad for a number of years to get a lower tax rate than I would have gotten by staying in New York or Los Angeles. Um, Ah, That was a big part of my, about my strategy, which I think we'll get into a little later.
1: Yes. Well, I love, you just pull a lot of threads together that I want to highlight for a minute. And one is that there can be this perspective in our culture that all debt is the same and that all debt is bad. And I'm actually going to even correct something that we all think about. We all think if I have a liability, if I have a loan of any kind, if I have a mortgage or a student loan, student loans, or I have credit cards, we think of all of that as debt. And the real truth is it's not even necessarily debt. Now in a case of a student loan, yes, it is because you are, you don't have an asset on the other side of that. But the true definition of debt is an asset minus liability. And what is that, that equation? If that's a positive number, you're in a position of equity or ownership, or you are in positive net worth. That's not even debt. But if you have negative net worth, now you're actually in debt. And so I think so many times people say, I have a loan, I have to do everything possible to just pay off that loan. And all of my life force and attention and financial means all is funneled into this one thing that's not even the big picture. And I think it can really sidetrack and distract so many people. And again, as you're saying, layer on that guilt and that shame, which is all the opposite of what you need to create the wealth that causes you to really live wealthy. So I love your story. Um, So let's then lead into, so you went to Singapore. Tell us about that. How did you decide Singapore and was it specifically for the tax rate or were you looking for something else? How did Singapore come into the equation?
2: Yeah. So the truth is, if I'm being really honest, it was kind of accidentally. Um, but basically like, you know, no one really, everyone kind of thinks student debt is part of life, part of being in your twenties, you know, you go to school, this is like what everyone is doing, but no one actually prepares you for when you see that bill with like six figures and it's your name on it. And, um, you know, so it actually what no one ever told me, which I wish they would have was that actually having this debt made it much harder for me to work in film or whatever because I couldn't take really low or no budget jobs. I did intern a few times, but eventually I had to make some money, so it actually that student debt made it harder for me to pursue my career goals, and that even felt like a bait and switch because. I just thought I had followed all the advice that like I had heard and, you know, that we had always talked about. So I didn't understand why I was in such a horrible amount of debt um, Mm. when I thought I was just following like the normal stuff everyone had to do. Um, And this is not to say like I'm a victim. I do believe I was a victim of predatory lending. but, But just
1: in general, you know, getting into the debt, I do take full responsibility for that. Well, and that's um, key even. I mean, not to interrupt you, but I think just the idea of taking ownership and responsibility. Hey, these are the decisions I made. Here's the financial position I'm now in. But it is frustrating when you're saying, well, hey, I did this so that I can get this career and work in this field. And now you're saying, well, actually to work in that field is not going to help me repay this loan that I have taken for that purpose. That's really complex, complicated and frustrating.
2: Yeah, I mean, and it's kind of like feels obvious to me now, which only more fed my shame and like I should have known better. Mm. But um, I was only 25 when I was making the decision to go to grad school. And um, I had actually finished undergrad with uh, only a small amount of debt because I had funded it on like uh, scholarships and working. And I kind of thought that grad school might be able to similar, but it just turned out graduate school was much more demanding and there really wasn't any time to take on other jobs the way that I had done in undergrad. Mm. Um, so anyways, the Singapore thing kind of came up by um, accident. I had graduated from NYU as a producer and I produced a several students films that were shooting abroad in Asia. And so I became like the the sort of Asia shooting producer of my nice. class. And while I was in Singapore, Singapore would be like the home base, right? Because it's a much higher, safer, better functioning country than a lot of other Southeast Asian ones. And while I was doing that, I met some other American expats who needed like a nanny. So it started out, I was just kind of, Doing some nanny work for this like very high net worth family, while I was also finishing my projects to get my degree. Um, and so when that wrapped up, I actually came back to New York, tried to find a job in New York. And when there was really nothing that I could kind of like make a living on, I actually went back to Singapore to work for that family um, some more. And I ended up. Um, kind of in that process and doing my taxes you know while I was living there realized that I was getting like a much lower tax rate than in the U.S. and that um, there's a lot of jobs where just by doing your same job in a different country even if you make under a hundred thousand, you're still you still might be able to save like twenty thousand, thirty thousand extra in tax if you're in a country with a low rate. So once I kind of figured that out the first year that I realized like, oh okay, wow, like I actually don't owe US tax because I was under the threshold.
1: Oh, Um, because I was gonna say I thought any if you're a US citizen, usually if you're living abroad, you still pay taxes in the U.S. plus that other country, usually, right? Yeah, usually, yeah. Unless you're under a threshold.
2: Yeah, so if you're under 107000 it's a pretty big threshold, actually. Oh. Um, so $107,000 for 2020, you do not have to pay U.S. tax on that amount. So like, oh, if you're okay. making $150,000 a year, you're basically taxed at the rate of someone who makes $43,000 oh, a year, which is okay. much lower. Mm-hmm. Um, because that first 107 basically doesn't doesn't count oh interesting um, and so then i thought well you know i didn't actually really like living in singapore initially uh, and i really thought it was kind of felt like punishment that i was like this <laughs> weird Asian country with like watching my friends like go to sundance and stuff and I, that was a real period of like mm. feeling i felt. I'm sorry to say that I messed up my life, you know. I was just like so uncomfortable and felt so ashamed of the amount of like Mm. students that I was in. I just said, you know what, I'm gonna just put my head down and work for a few years and do this. And um, financially that ended up being like a really good decision.
1: That's really interesting. So, I mean, there's so many lessons that you could pull from that one maybe before going into school, what advice would you give to somebody who is saying, okay, here's probably the cost of school. Here's probably what the career path and the finance, the financial income that you might get out of that. How do you think about that differently now in terms of an investment that you want to earn a return from when you're going into school?
2: yeah I mean so I ended up researching this for my book and it was really funny because all the things I learned of like what not to do were basically the things I had done like good art we school, all learn <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so so um yeah I just I felt you know whatever bad about
1: that um but anyhow remind me what you specifically asked Oh, so so what advice would you give to somebody who is oh, oh, yeah. looking at going into school and thinking about that as an investment that you want yeah, to return yeah. from in, in the career field?
2: So if I'm really being honest with myself, when I look back, I thought that I was just following my dreams and I thought that as Americans, this is kind of what we tell young people to do. Mm-hmm. Um, but a lot of the time... I wasn't taking into account how I actually had a lot of external validation attached to those goals. So like I thought, oh, it'll be enough if I'm just like a filmmaker and I'm at a party, I can say, you know, I worked on some documentary, whatever. But once I had the debt, I felt like I had to prove something that Mm. I had gotten something by going into this debt. So my goals became much more concerned with like, I have to, you know, make something successful right away. I, you know, I put all this pressure on myself that ultimately just made me really unhappy because like anything, it takes years to like learn how to get good at something. Mm -hmm. Um, And so, yeah, I just, I wish I could tell young people that like, um, you know, you shouldn't just pick anything and go to the best school. That might have been applicable years ago, but tuition has has increased by 1,400% since uh, 1940. So, and salaries have not increased at that rate. In fact, a lot of industries have declined. So for people who are really interested in being like journalists or musicians or artists, I try to say that, you know, you have to really go back and think about, do I want to be trying to pay off this debt? while I'm also trying to pursue that career because if that career only exists in like a big city, um, it might actually be easier to go intern before I have the debt. And so I don't have that extra burden of like trying to make that overhead every month. Mm. And, um, and, No one could have, I mean, people could have said this to me at the time when I was making the decision and I'm sure I would not have listened. So I totally can't like, if kids are like, no, I just want to
1: do this thing. It's so Um, interesting because we all learn through experience and yet we would like to shortcut the terrible decisions we make for other people. And I think it takes a unique person to be able to say, okay, look, I'm teachable now. And maybe that means that they had to have failed in a smaller capacity first. But I think that ability to be teachable and be open to learning and open to thinking differently is so critical of a mindset shift for anyone to become any kind of success in anything they do. And it's just really interesting that you look at the successful people have a different mindset usually than the people who, don't, who are not successful and who have not achieved the goals.
2: Yeah. And, you know, one part of financial self-sabotage, which is kind of the ongoing theme of my book, is like reducing financial self-sabotage. You know, one version of that, we always think about it like overspending or compulsive shopping or something like that. But really, one version of financial self-sabotage is like convincing yourself that what you have is like the way it has to be. And I used to tell people all the time, you know, um, you know, you don't understand the industry. This is what everyone has to do. Everyone has to work for free for like a year Mm. or two to even get a paid job. And when I started to be around wealthy people in Singapore, which my job put me in the center of, um, I just realized that other people didn't think this way. Like successful people were just much better at You know, advocating for themselves, um, asking for what they really wanted and um, kind of more unapologetic about like what their needs are or or how they want to spend their paycheck or whatever. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that was a big learning for me because uh, I had always had kind of a chip on my shoulder about rich people. And I realized how that really wasn't serving me at all, because it, once I lost that, I got a lot of much smarter friends than me <laughs> at the investment firm. They can help me look over investments today, even I can ask them for advice. Um, if I am out of work, I can ask people, "Do they need any remote work?" Like all of my my accepting of this world and like being part of it just really helped me in the end. Um, and I wouldn't have been able to do that if I was still kind of like judging wealthy people or putting myself in a separate category or what have happened.
1: I love that you share that. And I know we talked earlier as well before we brought you on the show and it's just interesting again, to see the difference in perspective between people who are successful and, and the majority or the, the status quo. And I don't say that to to belittle anyone in their current level of thinking, but what is required that I have realized that we talk about on the show on a regular basis is that if you want to have a certain level of achievement in your life, the only way to do that is to look at what other people who have achieved that are doing and surround yourself with that and change your mindset and up level and, and really think differently and expand your thinking because the level of thinking that we stay at if we're thinking and playing small is not abundance minded it's very constrictive it's guilt it's shame it's all the fear it's all the you know i can't have this or i can't have that i mean the same scarcity mindset causes somebody to hoard all their money and never spend anything and because they're afraid of not having enough money, but the same scarcity mindset also causes somebody to spend lavishly and spend everything they have and never save anything because they're afraid of missing out. And so either way that's driven in fear where the abundance mindset is this, how do I steward my resources, which is not just my financial wealth. This is my mental capital? How do I steward the intelligence that I've been given? How do I steward my gifts and my skills? And how do I best serve the world? How do I create the most value? And that's exactly what you were working to do. So let's fast forward now. Mm -hmm. Um, How did you pay off your student loan debt? How long did it take? Tell us, just take us through that story. And then you're talking about the book all throughout, but you have these practical tips and guidance that people probably may be aware of, and maybe it's on the fringes of their, the periphery of their, their concept in terms of how can you pay off student loans without getting stuck in that scarcity mindset?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's a great, I mean, that's a great question. And that's really the, the whole point here is, you know, I started to see that I think as I spent more time around people with money, like, they worked very hard, they're very smart, they're very unapologetic, Um, whereas I was like, would feel guilty for getting my paycheck on some weird level, like even though it was my paycheck that I earned. Um, so, you know, I, I ended up kind of taking a multi approach. Um, but the first thing was I tried to look at my goals and take out the external validation part of those goals. And this is something i find so interesting you know i even had this conversation with my publicist where we were talking about like instagram growth and i was like i was like why don't we have more numbers and she's like well these are the these are the quality like followers i'm targeting and she's like do you want to just look popular or do you actually want to have like people that are into the same thing you're talking about and I had to stop myself and be like yeah like which do I want I just want to look like I'm some whatever on, on Instagram and like why is I'm you know I think that there is some value in that in that you know could lead to opening other doors or whatever but it's like I need to constantly remind myself to shift my focus away and question really when I want to spend money on something like what am I after there? Am I trying to impress other people, make people like me, you know, and I found that once I took out the external validation, my goals were a lot more flexible and felt like achievable to me. Mm. Because I really just at the end of the day, I I don't really I realize I don't care if I work in film. I just really want to be around smart people who value me and pay me what I think I'm worth, and you know that was important to me, where I couldn't have seen that if I was just focused myopically on you know, oh, this goal of making films or what have you. Um, that
0: so
1: that's so key, and I want to interrupt you and just stop right there for a second yeah. because i think I think so many times we don't evaluate why. And that's what you're saying. You're saying really look at what is your why behind even what you're working for and what you're working to achieve. And it's possible that your why should be much grander and bigger than it even is now. And it's possible that your why is completely different than what you thought it was. And it is very interesting. You're ta- you're talking about taking out that external validation. That takes some deep internal work. I mean, that takes some self-awareness and some really thinking through and wrestling a over who you really are and how can you, you truly be fulfilled. So if you're listening to this, I think this is just a crucial perspective shift to really step back and say, how do I figure out what I actually want? Not what I think someone else expects of me. And I think maybe different cultural things play into that and maybe different personality styles or you could say there's so many different things I mean if you talk about Enneagram or you talk about uh, any one of the different ways of thinking and contextualizing personality yeah. I think some people are more driven to have an outward display of success in some way but what does that mean internally and I think that's really what you're yeah
2: after. yeah and And am I paying money to just like get followers or am I paying to find people that I can help with my book and my message? It really Mm -hmm. is the question. Mm -hmm. And if I go back to like, why did I even embark on this ever? Because I'm not, I'm not like a professional, uh, you know, writer, book author, something like that. Like I still have a day job, which is important for me to point out because I, I am just like anyone who has a job and who's trying to do this, you know? Mm -hmm. And the reason I even wrote a book, it was a huge step for me to just be able to say out loud. Like I once had this amount of debt because I hid it from I didn't tell anyone the number ever, not my partner, not my parents. Like I Mm. just couldn't even bring myself to say like, I have this much debt. Um, And so another thing that was really key in my approach that I also outlined in my book is um, really hunting out compulsive and impulsive behavior because so much of the mistakes people we make with money has to do with, um, sometimes it's tied to like addictive or compulsive behavior. And people say, you know, oh, just stop doing that. Just, Just don't spend money on alcohol anymore. Right, but if a person feels like that's really helping them cope with their emotions and their life, you can't really just tell someone to stop doing that. They might need some help, you know. So in my book, I try to give people a lot of resources for like whatever it is that that you feel may contribute to your compulsive money choices, like whether it's smoking, drinking, you know, depression, gifting compulsively. Um, anxiety that makes you like, you just buy something instead of looking for the cheapest one or the best deal or something. Mm. You know, anything like that, really, we have to be willing to look at those things because it's really hard to be like, I'm going to pay off all this debt while I still drink $40 of alcohol every single day or something, Absolutely. you know, and, yeah. and just be like, but I want to figure out how to get out of debt without addressing that. Well, actually, addressing that would be would be a really a really impactful step on like getting some money back from your paycheck every month and absolutely. It feels so hard to you know we all have our vices like our snacks, our food our netflix watching or whatever it is um but when those things are checking like uh the box of like small expenses adding up. It is something that it's like it would make my life a lot easier if I just looked at what I thought was the hardest thing instead of fighting to keep that one thing by eliminating everything else you know
1: you know it's just really interesting that you're talking about a leaning into something difficult, which is hard to do you're you're thinking now we have to remember to come into this conversation at all, you have to realize. A, I have a goal and that goal is important to me. And it's so important to me that I am willing to deal with my external validation and I'm willing to deal with obsessive behaviors or addictive behaviors. And I'm willing to do the hard work of looking at where I'm spending money. And this uh, is something that I'm not sure you're familiar with or not, but we don't advocate budgeting. We talk about having a spending plan and being aware of your cash flow. And a lot of times people will say, well, I don't have enough to, I'm not making enough money to save when really that just means we've become accustomed to a certain lifestyle and we expect that that's something that we ought to continue for whatever reason. Our friends expect it, our kids expect it, our spouse expects it, we expect it of ourselves, and we have to keep this going. And so a lot of times you can look at and address those things and really shore up your spending in areas that are not aligned with your value system. And I say that really strategically because if going out for coffee with a certain group of friends is really important to you, then that's not an expense you should cut. If right. if buying avocado toast and or eating healthy or eating organically or going to the gym is a core value of yours, then you shouldn't be cutting those things that are aligned with your values. The problem is I think a lot of times we do spend in ways that's not aligned with our value system. There's also, we talk about looking at your taxes and strategically addressing that and looking at the way that you're paying off debt and making sure you're not barreling all of your money into something that's not serving you well, and really being in a position of looking at all of the other factors outside of your lifestyle expenses that often are money leaks that are draining Mm -hmm. money out of your pocket. But at the same time, you're saying, hey, let's actually look at your lifestyle. Is your lifestyle congruent with what you want to be achieving in life?
2: Yeah, because if you're not doing that, um, you're just kind of applying the same black and white advice That we tell people also with like weight loss, right? And we say, "Oh, just just calories out, calories in, money out, money in." It's very easy. Just have more than you spend, or you know. But obviously, if that was so easy, everyone would be like up to speed with their retirement savings. Not in (laughs) a you know skinny whatever. And so I think I think the fact that like obviously more things. Are driving our behavior. It's a little more complex other than a lack of understanding of math or something.
1: Right. Um, well, and know. I think a piece of that is that it's so emotional. Everything that we do, we would like to think that we're very logical and systematic and, and disciplined in the way that we spend money. <laughs> and yet it's been proven that it's primarily an emotional, emotionally driven decision. We'll justify it later, later logically. But at the same time, it's an emotional decision. And so there's so many things that what you're talking about is how do I address that emotional side of everything that's happening with my money so that I can make wise choices? And yeah, I, I love that, that you're talking about cause that. Because
2: the anxiety of like not being able to do your credit card bill, pay it off in full that month is almost like in a way worse than whatever discomfort you might have had to go through to like oh, sure. make that extra budget or whatever. And um another thing I always tell people if they're like, What's something easy I can just do, you know, right away? Um, I I ask them like, How is your how is your non monthly budgeting? Right? So so Good. we always have tell people about a monthly budget, but a lot of people, I'm even guilty of this, don't put things that I do every three, four months or once a year. Mm-hmm. So for example, Christmas. if I yeah, like Christmas or just, I know I get my, if I get my hair cut and colored, I don't by the way, but if I did, and I know that that's $300 every three months, um, it shouldn't just be like that month hits and I spend the money and I'm taking it out of my emergency fund because like, whoops, it wasn't in the monthly budget.
1: <clears throat> right. Have
2: to just like average out, do a little, spend a couple of minutes averaging out those less frequent expenses and making sure you're just pulling that as a monthly cost and putting it to the side so that when you do it does come up, you don't have to go through this like guilt spiral of taking out of my emergency fund, which to me sends me through a whole emotional drama of like, Oh, I'm doing this again. Why am I doing this? You know right. and and I just can save myself all of that if I just say, Look, yeah, you know, every summer, you like to buy a new swimsuit. So you better have, you know, a hundred bucks in May and and set aside, you know, a couple of dollars each month just so you can do that. So when it comes up, you don't have to beat yourself up for going into your emergency fund or not paying your bill in full.
1: I love several things. One, you're talking about planning long range. Secondly, you're talking about an emergency fund. So I will share our perspective with emergency fund because as we believe you should be paying yourself first, up to at least 30% of your income now. Granted, some people who are not saving at all, 2% of your income is a good first step, but you should be working towards 30% or more of your income. And then you're building that into an emergency fund for true emergencies, things like unforeseen medical expenses or- yeah, or uh, COVID. <laughs> right, right. I mean, not that that's a laughing matter, but we, nobody could have predicted that. I mean, that's not something yeah. that you plan for a pandemic every year to come around or something. But yeah, yeah. When but that's a true emergency. Whereas what you're talking about is a planned spending item. I mean, for instance, we will advocate saying if it's Christmas, then yes, take your monthly amount and plan for that each month in your planning tracking system. Maybe that's mint.com, maybe you're using YNAB, you need a budget, maybe you're um just doing it pen and paper, but somehow you're thinking of how am I allocating in my monthly spending for these large ticket items? And honestly, you should even be accounting for things like renewal tags on your car and service and maintenance. I mean, that's not an emergency if you know that you're going to end up at some point replacing (laughs) tires.
2: Right, and I mean, it's not to say, oh, we have to like overly worry and think of every possible thing that could go wrong, but it's kind of like just getting a little more honest with yourself. Like, I know I probably will buy Christmas gifts. I do it every year. This year probably won't be an exception. Versus like, oh, maybe I'll just decide to like not get a pedicure next month. Maybe, but like, (laughs) when was the last time that happened? You know, let's not pretend that these things are just coming up out of need or whatever when they actually really aren't, you know?
1: Mm -hmm. So let's um, bring it back to your story for a second. This is really, really beneficial and valuable. So $289,000 of student loan debt. So how long did that take you to cover and pay that off?
2: Yeah, yeah. So to be totally honest with you, it's not completely paid off. I've paid off um, about one hundred and fifty thousand dollars of debt. And That's still I've, a lot. In um, how much time frame? In uh, I guess it would be a span of eight years. Um, That's so, a lot. So so that was um, and and part of that strategy was kind of things I already mentioned, like working abroad, um, mm-hmm. and just putting that money I saved on U.S. tax back into the loans. Um, I did a lot of work to fix my credit. That was a oh, huge this part good. of the story as well. Mm-hmm. Um, because I think, you know, I just spoke at a conference. I didn't really get into the
1: importance of credit because I was like, oh, it's kind of a boring, downer topic. for kids. Oh, it is boring. <laughs> but but like- most, most of the fundamental... The fundamentals of finance are very boring, and I think sometimes we're like let's get on to the exciting things and the problem is the exciting, flashy things are not what systematically set you up for systematic success, so yeah, go ahead and exactly. you can you can touch so, on this as much as you want, yeah, yeah, so like at the, when I was
2: really first facing the debt, my credit score was probably in the five or six hundred um because I had, when I moved abroad, like I had some bills that didn't get paid and they were bad items and you know, there was just it was just kind of messy because I hadn't been paying close enough attention. Mm -hmm. And,
1: um, which is common for anybody.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So I, I was trying to, I was at the time, my loans were getting eight and a half percent interest per month. So it was quite a lot. I think they were earning something like $1,500 in just interest every month. So if I paid fifteen hundred dollars towards the debt, that would only cover the amount of interest that the debt gained for that month, and not wow. pay off anymore.
1: more. So this would, like, do you know your total me. I can imagine just because. Okay, so fifteen hundred a month. I mean, you have to think about the volume of the liability itself, the loan, the two eighty nine thousand. I want to make sure I'm saying that number correctly, and then eight and a half interest that is huge yeah 1500 a month I mean that's a giant payment for anybody so
2: every month like I was under the um income-based repayment I didn't have to pay the 1500 a month. I only had to pay 10 percent of my income but that meant that the loan was still growing faster than it was reducing and that was like killing me just killing me every month because I'm like I'm in a suicide mission here like I I'm actually not ever going to get out of the debt unless I can change something about this how this machine is working? I think
1: that's really important for somebody to realize and process through as well just because there is an availability of making a smaller payment doesn't mean it's the right decision for you and you want to think about the big picture so that's really important that you mentioned that the loan was still growing
2: and I have talked to um this guy Travis Horney on student loan planner He has a really great strategy. If people have government debt, which is he gets people to like pay off the minimum of the government debt, but then put the rest in a savings so that the interest that you get from that will pay off your big tax bill later when the debt gets written off completely. Um, So that is one strategy. Also, I didn't really go for that because my debt was just snowballing at such a high rate every month. So I really focused on refinancing to get that interest number down so that I could at least say every month I was paying off a little bit of the actual debt not just Mm -hmm. that month's interest so um
1: well, and I like yeah, what you so mentioned as well about the the possible other strategy of paying the minimum. Now, if you're in a position where I mean, there's so many elements of this that I'll pull together at the end, but you're mentioning yeah. refinancing for a lower rate, which is a key part so that you're minimizing the overall amount of interest that you're paying, but it also means that the, the dollars that you do pay towards the loan are moving you forward instead of backwards.
2: Right, right, which I know is kind of also something that you guys advocate for when you're looking at like hella credit versus um your product and stuff so
1: yeah I think that is and I'll bring that um, up in just a second but I want to stick with your story for a second
2: yeah so um so yeah so I basically hired this lawyer on like Upwork or something um and asked him he was like a retired tax lawyer and I was like can you please help I don't know anything about improving credit can I pay you a couple hundred bucks and you fix this or see if you can fix this situation. Um, And so during that process, I learned all about how, you know, you first look at the reporting agencies. Is that information correct? Then you look at Mm -hmm. like the debt you actually already owe um, and the time treatment. you know, so he helped me look at all these different things. um, And I have a chapter in my book where I kind of like explain that process to people. And I have like drafts of the letters we sent that people can just kind of copy and you know put in their own information
1: like a template
2: yeah like templates um so that was a big a big thing and for my first nine months of trying to refinance it was just rejection rejection my Mm. salary was not high enough my debt was way too high nobody even wanted to touch it it made me feel just like a worthless person like nobody wanted to even mm. take a chance like borrowing money to me um and it was so easy to get wrapped up in that and be like w- I should just give up like this is pointless, I'm just gonna have this debt, but I didn't you know I kept if I would get a raise or if you know four or six months would pass, I would just try to reapply again to see if maybe this time you know I had a little bit lower debt to income ratio, so maybe you know they could do something, and eventually mm. um I did. I think I first got it refinanced from like eight and a half to like six and a half. Okay. And I just continued every couple, six months or year when I would get a raise or when a little more of the debt was paid off, I would try to get a better rate, better rate. And now my rate is like three and a half or something because my credit pre- pretty much perfect, you know, at this point. And that's excellent. Um, and I paid a lot of the frame. debt off. Yeah. And so... So basically, by just detaching my sense of, like, self-worth away from, like, these rejections of wanting to lend me the refinancing money, um, I was able to keep going and actually eventually get much lower rates. So I'm not hemorrhaging excellent. interest like I was at the time. Right. Um, and that was a huge part of getting the debt reduced because otherwise I would have just been paying only interest forever.
1: I love that you mentioned that because, again, any loan payoff, whether it's for student loans or whether it's for poor purchases that you've made in the past or whether it's from you ha- you lost your job and you had to keep on your life expenses and putting food on the table and so you went and dipped into credit cards, whatever the reason, there is a strategic way that will work for you. There's not one best way. There's not one blanket answer. It's not all debt is bad, pay it off all as fast as possible. It's not, don't ever pay off your Yeah. It's not, only pay off the high interest ones first. And I think the problem is a lot of times people can use these blanket um, strategies to conquer liabilities that don't work for everyone. I mean, that's kind of where we started the conversation today. And I, I just want to mention, so we talk about something called the cash flow index, where you take the balance of the loan, divide by the minimum monthly payment, and I was actually gonna ask you if you remember um when your interest was at eight and a half percent and the interest payment itself was fifteen hundred. Do you remember what the total um payment that on on the loan is that you could have made at that time? Do you remember that? Yeah, amount? I mean I think it was only like
2: maybe seventeen hundred or even like sixteen seventy eight or something. 1678, like sixteen seventy eight, okay. It was and- so um primarily just
1: that month <laughs> interest. So I was going to calculate that here. So 289,000, if we say 289,000, oops, I've got too many zeros, 289,000 divided by, you said 1678. So that leads me, yeah, okay, I want to make sure I did that right because that was a very high number. 289,000 divided by 1678. Yeah, 172 is the number I come up with. So the way the cash flow index works is that basically you wanna think about or conceptualize, and this might be a brand new topic for somebody who's listening, so I just wanna outline it very briefly. But it's Mm. thinking differently about different liabilities based on how much of your monthly cash is going to pay that minimum payment each month. So how much pain it feels like, how much hemorrhage that is for that particular liability compared to the balance and when you really think about the big picture it's basically meaning if you had two loans they're both $1000 but one requires a $2 a month payment and one requires $400 a month payment the one that pays that you requ- that's requiring $400 a month to go towards that payment is going to hurt you more on a monthly basis and you want to fix that one first so if you had the 1000 you would want to pay that loan off first before the one that only costs you $2 a month that's the premise behind it Now granted, there's going to be other factors. What's the interest rate? What's the, um, there's just a lot of other, is there, is it a credit card that's going to go from a 0% to having a a interest rate in a certain number of months? There's a lot to think Mm -hmm. about with this, but generally the cash flow index would say, if your score, the balance divided by the minimum monthly payment, if you get between zero and 50, then generally that's going to be in your danger zone. Those are the ones that you want to pay off as fast as possible. Or chunk as much cash towards if you're between 50 and 100 that's usually your um, your uh, there's a like a warning zone you want to think about how can I restructure these and then if the number is over 100 so this is usually going to be your student loans going to be your mortgages in the most grand scheme of things those are the ones that would it would take a really long time to pay off the full balance and it's not going to improve your financial situation as much However, when you were saying 1500 a month is going just towards interest, you're saying, let's deal with this so that you're not having that much go towards interest. So according to the cash flow index score, that's 172. That would have placed that liability, actually it would have placed it in the freedom zone, which would have meant that if you had $289,000 just happening to be lying around and you wanted to pay off a full liability, you Probably would have had other liabilities that had a bigger payment that would have taken more priority, and the student loan could have stayed on your on your um, balance sheet, and you could have kept that loan or refinanced it. So what what we're saying in this whole situation is that maybe for you, if you're listening, your student loans are a high priority to pay off, and maybe they're not. Sometimes a student loan might have such a low payment compared to the balance that it's not really that big of a priority to pay it off as quickly as possible, and your cash could be put to better use whereas maybe you're refinancing, you're restructuring that payment, now you have a lower payment, and now the, the difference that you were paying, now you can put that into a place for savings. The only thing you want to conceptualize is, we can eliminate interest, which is removing the interest payment, but what's the opportunity cost of that? What am I giving exactly. up in order to put my cash there? And so if I could have earned more interest by putting my money to work and had more peace of mind by having that emergency fund, opportunity fund, as you had mentioned earlier, where's the best use of my cash. And so it's not a blanket strategy. It's not something that you can just do the same thing for every person.
2: Yeah, and I feel that there was unfortunately kind of a series of fine personal finance writers that I think came came up at the time that most people's debt was credit card debt. So, yeah, right. if you have like 26% interest on a credit card bill that you can't refinance, like obviously that's a hemorrhage and you should be aggressively trying to either reduce the interest or pay it off or whatever. Um, But I think people, once you throw like student loans into the mix, it becomes a way more complex issue with different options and different, you know, approaches to dealing with it. And unfortunately, I think that people just get confused by how, you know, complicated or, or, intimidated that they don't understand money or investing Mm -hmm. enough to really do this but um you know it's it's really much simpler than people think and even the process of like buying a house when you have debt is something that a lot of people just yeah I had two properties actually at one point um and I I just sold my Los Angeles one that I only stayed in for for three years um but Mm. i made like almost sixty thousand dollar profit on that um but nice people will think like oh you know i'm i'm out of the running they take themselves out of the running you know of like oh that's just i can't i don't have enough money to like think about that stuff or my financial situation isn't so complicated that i need you know these tools or or what have you and um i just tell people like look start somewhere. Don't be afraid of what you don't know. But just even trying to read a book that's based on, you know, like my book is helping regular people understand these things. And it's like, Mm -hmm. just try giving yourself the ammunition to like start thinking in a different way. Don't worry about what you don't know or what you don't understand. There's a lot of things about finance I don't understand. But that doesn't mean I can't learn some of the easier things to, like, really improve my day-to-day life in in the meantime.
1: That's excellent. And I think we all have to start with where we're at and maximize and exercise the best stewardship of our resources and keep learning. And that means that no matter who you are, inadvertently you're going to get five years down the road and you're going to say, I wish I had done things differently And at the same time, you've made progress based on the best you knew at the time. And so that is the number one thing that's going to give you the confidence to continue to make that traction and move forward. So um, Stephanie, so if somebody does want to get your book or wants to find out more about you or follow your blog, how do they do that? How do they connect up with you?
2: Yeah, yeah. So um, my book is available online at the usual places. It's on Amazon, Target. Barnes and Noble's website. Um, to learn more about me, my website is www.youarenotyourdebt.com. And I, I do that. have um, some blog articles there and links also to buy the book. Um, and you can sign up on my mailing list if you would like updates um, or times when I'm on shows like yours again. So yeah, they can check it out there. debt.com.
1: Excellent. And I know that they can buy your book directly. Well, I think they can buy your book directly from that as well. Yeah, there's a link there too. Mm -hmm. Yes. Okay. I've seen that. I wasn't sure if it just takes you out to the other sources, but that is great. And you know, if you are listening today and you're thinking, hey, I have a lot of debt. I haven't been sure how to think about this. Maybe it's time to get a book like buy the avocado toast. And maybe it's time to really start thinking through what are your options? How can you maximize your income? How can you think differently about this rather than just having to scrimp and save and limit and shrink down in scarcity and think you're going to be in debt forever rather than having the guilt hanging over your head forever. And rather than just ignoring it or setting it off to the side and being like, this is too challenging. I don't want to have to deal with this. Rather than any of those options, if you proactively take steps to say, how can I maximize my responsibility, my stewardship? How can I use my money to the best of my ability? You're going to be on the right track. So I would encourage you as well, if you're thinking, what position am I going to be the safest? And I know, Stephanie, you mentioned this as well, that being free of debt is not the same thing as being financially free. And I think sometimes we get that confused and we say, oh, well, if I'm just out of debt, that means that I'm finally financially free. But really, we ultimately want to have that financial freedom where you have income from assets that is greater than your expenses. You're in a position where you're thinking about real estate and businesses and you're thinking about, how do I have those things that are, that are covering my monthly living? And maybe that's not someone's goal. But usually when I'm talking about financial freedom, I'm saying, how can I maximize all of my assets to produce as much cash flow as possible? So, I want to as, as well mention if you're interested in finding out more about the best place to store cash while you are also paying down loans, while you're also moving forward financially, we have a course called Privatized Banking Secrets, and you can go to privatizedbankingsecrets.com for more information on that. So, Stephanie- I actually checked
2: it out, it's very interesting. So, awesome. I just want to give <laughs> it's a great resource.
1: Well, thank you. I appreciate that. And and again, this would be more so for the type of strategy of saying, how can I maybe pay that minimum on my loan right now? And how can I put the rest of my cash over into a place where I can store that capital and I can access and I can use it and it's growing possibly even at a higher interest rate than the loan that I'm paying, which means then if I can store up this cash and have access to it all along the way, I'm in a position where I now have that emergency and opportunity fund that I can tap into and oh, by the way, I might even be able to pay off my loan sooner because of the growth on that all in one lump mm-hmm. sum. So again, it's thinking differently, thinking what are my options and what works for me. So sometimes it requires talking with somebody about your strategy and really putting all the pieces together. Sometimes it's just a show like this with ideas that give you that spark of, of what you can do to move forward.
2: Yeah. And I mean, people like we're not just put on this earth to be like vessels for making money or paying off debt, you know? Um, <laughs> the the, per- the person working on like five hours of sleep because they have three jobs is not the guy who's like coming up with a light bulb moment in the board meeting, right? Mm, it's like, so good. you know, when you, you had asked a question, I think um, about like, why is it important to understand that that does not define you? It's like, you don't want to internalize that feeling of like i'm a person who's bad worthless made bad decisions mm. deserves to punish myself um, you know you just don't want to be that person so it is it is very important for these messages about separating yourself from from you know self esteem and finance intertwinement that is really applicable today
1: absolutely and i think nothing will kill your productivity and your creativity and your ability to actually produce value in the world faster than having all those negative mindsets that I'm, I'm guilty, I'm not worth this, and I'm bad, and all this shame. So, really, we need to value ourselves, as you were talking about, and be able to work through those mental barriers. So, Stephanie, thank you for sharing your story today. Thank you for being brave enough to put out there (laughs) that $289,000 of student loan debt. I mean, that's not something that is easy to be vulnerable about, and yet you've chosen to do that, and you're not only liberating yourself, but other people as well. And so, I really appreciate you doing that.
2: Hopefully, yeah. (laughs) Thank you so much, Rachel. It was really a pleasure talking to you, really.
1: Awesome. Awesome. Well, I sincerely appreciate this today. Thank you for sharing your book. If you're listening, go get a copy of Buy the Avocado Toast. And in closing, please remember success leaves clues. So model the successful few, not the crowd and build a life and business you love. Discover the secret of how to earn a return on the same money in two places at the same time so that you can strengthen your investment returns. We've created a free guide for you that explains the top three things every investor needs their privatized banking system to do. Go to themoneyadvantage.com banking, put in your name and primary email address, click the send my free guide button right now, and we'll see you on the inside.
0: Thank you for listening to the Money Advantage podcast. Today's show notes and resources are available for you on themoneyadvantage.com.